Hey, this is Bernard Meisler, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show, yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Bernard Meisler. He's the author of There's Never Been a Better Time to Die. He's also the founder and editor of Sensitive Skin Magazine, Fantastic Magazine, and Sensitive Skin Podcast. Bernard, how are you? I'm okay. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm, I'm doing my my imitation of like the bad guest, right? Like, yeah, do you yeah. ever get the people on your guests and you just try to like get them going and you like you fall back on like your Mark Marin questions, like where'd you grow up and what, what'd your folks do? And they go, uh, I grew up in L.A. And what'd your folks do? It's like my dad was a doctor, my mom was a teacher. Yeah. Wait, wait, what's it like to write a novel? It's okay. Um, <laughs> and then doing the podcast, what's that like? It's okay. And then, um, and then also you have Sensitive Skin Magazine. I mean, doing that for many years, what's that like? It's all right. Hey, thanks for being on the show. <laughs> right, it's great to see you, man. <laughs> Glad we got to dig deeply into some stuff I usually don't get a chance to talk about. That was awesome. Thank yeah. you. No, it's. I feel like... I feel like we bonded in a whole new way. You know, we used to be friends, but now it's kind of really intimate. I feel like, like you're having a nicotine lodging right now. I feel like I need to smoke a cigarette, and I don't even smoke. I feel post-coital. I'm I'm doing uh, what they used to call a sobriety speedball here. Uh, it's a nicotine lozenge and uh, an americano at the same time. So my voice might start getting faster <laughs> as we go along. I'm already feeling a little jacked. I just gotta come. I gotta take it down a notch. Okay, let's go. Let's go. How does, how what does a nicotine lozenge lozenge taste like? Do you get different flavors? It's a cool minty flavor. Yes, it's like it's like a cool mountain breeze, blowing through my neurons and making them fire up. You know, you know, nicotine makes you smarter, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, I doubt it does. Like, if you're like addicted to it and smoke 50 cigarettes a day, it probably doesn't do anything to you. But there have been tests where they showed they gave like control groups and people who didn't smoke or what non-smokers and they made them do you know and the uh, people who had like a nicotine lozenge or whatever did significantly better on like all the tests than yeah so yeah i have a theory about that okay. because i feel like nicotine uh, especially when smoking it it's a it's a meditation it's a time to take a breath even though you're taking a toxic breath we don't breathe we don't breathe in our Western culture anymore. And so even like uh, even going to a smoking area when you're seeing a band, there's more conversation and more pause being taken, I feel. I don't know how it works with nicotine lodges. You know, my English is my first language. I'm sorry. I've never thought of that. But so like smoking, like I am, I am inhaling in. I am exhaling as you're <laughs> It's a form of meditation. That's a new one on me. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I'm out of my mind. Just say it. <laughs> you're, you're out of your mind. I don't know. I don't know. Meditation's good, though. I'm a, I'm a, a half-assed meditator. I don't do it. Uh, there's been times where I did it, like, you know, I got one of those little apps, and I saw I did it, like, 200 days in a row or whatever, and then maybe I don't do it for a long time, but it's... It's one of those things, it's like it's like the old joke, right? It's like golf or sex. You don't have to be any good at it to like enjoy it, you know? I mean, 
I wouldn't say enjoy it, but you don't have to be any good at it to get a benefit from it. Like with, yeah, well, like with sex, you just have to show up. You know, you, you, yeah, or it's like pizza, you know, it's like, it's, it's bad, but oh, it's all right. You know, I'll, I'll have some. <laughs> but no, the meditation is like people, you can, people study this stuff and go for years on silent retreats trying to like get to various levels. But I think there's just an enormous benefit especially in our fucking insane, toxic society of just uh, stopping every once in a while. And, and you don't even have to like say, I'm going to like concentrate on my breath for five minutes. It's, I think, well, it's kind of like what you just said almost. It's like, just stop and feel your body. And you can do that in like two seconds. And, like, and it's amazing, but if you do that even just a couple of times a day, it will like lower your anxiety levels you know just like bring you closer to home somehow i don't know why but that's what i found anyway when i stop and feel my body at children's playgrounds i get arrested yeah well <laughs> i should stop meditating near the children's place it's only in the privacy of your own home am i suggesting that anybody do this but uh, you don't have to physically feel your body up when you're meditating how would that be? I, I would go. I would go to one. I, if there was a Buddhist, you have to physically feel your body, like a masturbation meditation technique, no, no, or no, no, no. <laughs> just, just, just making sure everything's there while you release your brain. I don't know. Like I am, I am jacking up. I am jacking down. I am jacking off. I am jacking on. I don't know. Whatever. I mean, whatever people need to do. You know. I mean, it's it's. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to be an uh, old curmudgeon um, because... Be an old curmudgeon. Bring it, baby. Well, things are objectively so much better in so many ways than when I was a kid, you know? Uh, and, I mean, you, you could ask... I, 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 I mean, just like the way things have been for every any minority group, you know? Jeez, it's almost 2020, so 50 years ago goes to 1970, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. That's, that seems crazy to me, um, but uh, because I grew up in the 70s, I remember the 70s pretty pretty well, but uh, that's 50 fucking years ago. But I mean, back then, it was like, you know, there were, there were still restricted country clubs were the norm, you know, and, and Jews and Italians, never mind African-Americans, had to have their own country clubs. African-Americans probably couldn't afford even think of the idea of a country club, but still... So I, I don't know. In a lot of ways, things have gotten objectively better, but uh, they've also got objectively so much worse in so many ways. And I don't want to say the T word, you know. Uh, Tony's fine. Tony, fine. Yeah. It's, ever since Tony took over, <laughs> I, see, I don't think Tony is the source of the problem. I think he's the symptom of the problem. Please get my name out of this. <laughs> I did that. That was so dumb. But I, I don't know. So what the heck, you know, just it's like it's 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 good to it's good to make art, you know. Speaking of that. So um, you grew up in New York City or where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Providence, Rhode Island. Yes, I'm a. Why did I forget that? I don't know. Everybody forgets Rhode Island. Nobody. It's funny. It's like. I actually mentioned it in my book, my characters from Rhode Island, you know, in my book. The, 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 the main character is basically, uh, you know, 
I treated people, some people said I, I treated some people pretty harshly in the book, but I don't think I treated anyone more harshly than the main character, who's, who's basically me if I'd like not quit drinking and doing drugs, you know? But it just like toned it down a little bit, you know? Uh, totally amoral and, you know, lacking in any kind of integrity. And, and he's just making, uh, but the people around him are even worse than he is. So in that sense, it's like the classic noir, you know, there's no, there's no good guys. Um, anyway, like me, the, I, the character in the book mentions that like, yeah, I grew up in Rhode Island. And I say, anytime I would say that, people would say, oh, you mean Long Island? Like, no, Rhode Island. It's like one of the 50 states. Like, did you not go to sixth grade or whatever? Anyway. I was in Rhode Island a month ago. Really? What were you doing there? I was visiting my girlfriend. Um, Well, we drove through Providence, but I was in Jamestown. Um, And, I I mean, I really like Rhode Island. Jamestown is gorgeous. You know, Rhode Island is is a, a seriously mixed bag. There were some great things about growing up there, and there's some really horrible things about growing up there, you know? Um, for instance, uh, I mean, it was great to be, like, to have, like, the seashore and Narragansett Bay, and, and, and Providence was a lot of fun when I was growing up. It was, like, really, like, on the skids, you know? It was, like, it was like a really depressed city, but that meant that there were, like, all these great bars and clubs. Uh, we had these... Uh, there were clubs that were known nationally. A couple of them there was the Met Cafe and Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel. They were known as like two of the biggest dives in the entire country, you know. But like they were, it was great fun. But it was also like this huge mob presence. Yeah, absolutely, you know. And uh, I don't know. It's funny. I just looked this up the other day. I actually, I don't know what possessed me to look this up the other day, but I actually. Uh, um, Remember the guy's name? It was Rudy, and he was a guy I knew in high school who was actually killed in a mob hit, like my senior year of high school. Yeah. And that was just kind of the, you know, life that we led, the water we swam in. So hearing something like that was like, oh, that's fucked up. But it didn't, like, hit me like how fucked up that was till years later. And I was out, like, out in other parts of the world and going, that happens to most people having a classmate hit in senior year of high school um yeah and and then rhode island also has the uh the extreme weather it's it's something where you gotta be if you're from rhode island like everyone i know from rhode island's got kind of a toughness to them they they, there's a if if i were to be with anyone during the apocalypse and someone said oh i'm from rhode island i'm like i'm going your way i'm going your way well, you know, you've all heard of like uh, mass holes, you know, like the, like the, the, the Rhode Island. I just, I just heard about that last month. Okay, mass right, people from Massachusetts are basically assholes, and the people from Rhode Island are the same, but more so, really, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, you know. There's again, there's like because of that like that mob presence sort of thing. There's like it's like a really kind of unfriendly environment to say people who like to you know read books. Yeah, rather than say like you know play football, maybe you know. Um, so, I was really happy to leave there when I did. I, I went to New York, right? And uh, and that's where you started sensitive skin, right? When you were in New York. Well, it's funny. I was actually um, listening to a podcast that I did last summer with Bart Plantenga, and he reminded me that 
the very first iteration of sensitive skin was done in Paris when I was living in Paris in the late uh, 80s. Yeah, like we we were. I was uh, uh, I, I went by for years. I got by for years working as like a temp, and basically was doing typing for a while. You know, word processing, and then I got into desktop publishing because it was like less boring and made a little more money. And I did that for years. That's how I supported myself. And what's great about desktop publishing is it gives you access to copy machines and software that helps you design. Exactly. So like I was with my my uh, best friend at the time, Norman Douglas, and we're like, hey, we got this little Mac here. This is like a printing press. And like, let's, you know, let's do a magazine. So me and Norman and Bart and a guy named Eugene Ostrzeszewski, who's now like some very well-known... Uh, academic in Russian translations, I guess. And another guy, whatever, we just we, we, we put together a little broadsheet. It was like eight-page magazine. And then I got back to New York um, about a year later, and Norman was back there too. And I was like, hey, what the hell? Let's do sensitive, you know, let's do a magazine. And yeah, so, and that was, in, we were involved with uh, the other people who were involved in the first issue were just the people we were hanging around with. We were, it was Steve Cannon. We were sitting on Steve Cannon's stoop of uh, Steve Cannon of Gathering of the Tribes, who sadly passed away earlier this year. Um, but uh, and also John Ferris, a, a great poet who passed away three, four years ago. We were sitting on Steve's stoop and we're like, "Yeah, what the hell? Let's do it!" And uh, so it was us and me and Norman and John and Steve and uh, Darius James. Uh, wrote Negrophobia, also was involved in the first issue, and it's just, and and it's funny because that's really how it started. And then we put it like the five of us were in this first issue it was like eight pages, and then we like, hey, a couple other people said, hey, could I? I want to be in the next one, and the next one was eight to twelve pages, and then we put out another one three months later. There was sixteen pages, and then you know, and it just really kind of blew up, but. And so to like three years later, we're getting stuff like from Allen Ginsberg and, you know, and, and, and uh, folks like that. Um, but it, it, it's funny. I think there's always been this sort of misunderstanding of what the uh, I don't know what the word to call it is. The, 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 the motif, the message, the theme of the magazine that we're about, like, you know, edgy stuff and drugs and sex and whatever and crazy stuff and avant-garde or and it's really just like it's like my friends and and their friends and maybe they happen to skew a little bit towards that but you know um, I just want to publish good writing and I, I could care less uh, what the subject matter is you know and I, I think that can be a that can be a trap that people fall into trying to do that you know so yeah, I mean, the, the main thing I care about is almost, I always look for honesty in writing. Even in fiction, you could tell if somebody's just kind of really being yeah. honest yeah. and and hitting that hitting those deep, or maybe not so deep. It doesn't have to be, I don't want anything crazy, but you just, re, you know, the, the author's being honest with the character, and yeah. that, that just excites me to no end. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and also, I just love when I see in fiction when it becomes... Uh, terribly obvious to me that you know this actually happened 
something that the author is talking about, you know, right. that one of the characters says or two characters have an interaction. It's like, okay, this is obviously really happens because right. it's just too good. You couldn't make it up, you know? Or, yeah, yeah. Or, um, or it's not good enough because they didn't craft it to actually uh, be part of the story. Or it, that's, and you're just like, wait, I have that with my students sometimes. I'm like, this really happened, right? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. You got to amp this up. You got to move this down. It's it's almost like the the truth is almost too too much. It's got to serve the story. Absolutely. I mean, that's also that's absolutely true. It's just like that's you know, there's uh, real life is full of like uh, you know matrix moments. You know what I mean? It's just like well, no, that's impossible. You know? I mean, that's I mean, a silly example. It's like you're a baseball fan, right? Right, so who's the general manager for the Yankees, the richest team in baseball? Do you remember? His name is Brian Cashman. You know what I mean? And it's like if you're writing a novel about baseball and you had the richest team in baseball and you said the manager's name is Brian Cashman, you'd be like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, you definitely have to tone down reality to uh, make it work as fiction sometimes. Yeah, that, that's funny. I, that, the first time I drove by Yankee Stadium was last month, too. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, I have not been to the new Yankee Stadium. Yeah, yeah. The old Yankee Stadium was fun, but it was falling apart. So they really had to, uh, you know, do something. But it was, it was fun. I mean, it was funny. To, I, we used to go there in like the in the '80s, and you know, you could buy bleacher tickets for like five bucks, and people would just be sitting in the bleachers, like drinking and smoking weed and whatever. And it was just like it was. It was like New York. It was totally lawless. <laughs> yeah. that, that was the same with uh, San Francisco and Candlestick Park with the Giants. I mean, it was five bucks for bleacher seats. We, I would put rum, a bottle of rum in my sock because we were all underage. And then we'd like go, we just walk down the third baseline because no one was there and get better seats you know. yeah those were the those were the days um yeah so i mean well there you go to so, uh, come full circle about things that are not as good as they used to be you know uh, uh there's a it's so sad how every kind of performance or event is seems to be like corporatized these days you know and like you want to <clears throat> i mean i'm a i'm a warriors fan and uh I like, why, did you, why did you hesitate there? Is it because you're from the East Coast? Well, because it, people will think I'm a bandwagon fan, and oh, it's kind of disgusting yeah. to be a Warriors fan, you know. But I'm a Warriors fan because I live in the Bay Area, and I Steph Curry's like, uh, I love great point guards and team. I like basketball because of like the intricacy of like when a team is really functioning together. So, which is why, like a player like LeBron as great as he is he bores me because it's just like give me the ball and i'll go you know bully my way and or 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 else if too many people around me i'll throw it out to some guy who's open because you know it's not interesting but well it's not that's almost like seeing a rock band and a guy just doing guitar solo for like two hours when you're like where's the rest of the band coming in right you want to function is it's much more interesting when there's a band there's a chemistry going on and anyway the warriors had this amazing chemistry for a few years and uh and now they're the worst team and basketball but they moved to a new arena right just like this yeah they're there at the new chase arena and like they had they were terrible they were like terrible bottom dwellers for decades and they still had this fervent like fanatic fan base who would like go to um the oracle arena and fill it up and go see even when they stunk 
And then like, oh, they finally got good. And like, well, fuck you, people. Let's go build it in San Francisco. Where, and I looked before the beginning of the season, a friend of mine asked, hey, maybe we should go see the Warriors. And like, the worst tickets were like $250. I was like, fuck off. And now they are terrible. They're the worst team in basketball because they had a bunch of injuries. <laughs> and the tickets are still like $80 for shitty tickets. And I'm like, what? Well, fuck. Yeah, come on, you know. So I don't know. It cracked me up that uh, there was a bid for the Miami Heat's uh, arena. Did you hear about this? To, to be sponsored by Bang Bros. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, for Florida, that is so rad. It's, it's so perfect for Florida, right? But yeah, the the, uh, uh, <laughs> the Bang Bros Arena, they offered them $10 million to change the name. Wow. Yeah, and I, I think they had to turn it down, but that's you know kind of perfect for where we're at as a society. I, well, I mean, I hate that we have to uh, say Chase Stadium because we have to. We're saying a bank. We're saying a bank and a credit card. That it's, and it, I just hate that we have to. Um, right, so the Warriors, the Warriors now play in Chase Arena, and it's like fuck you. You know, I already have your stupid credit cards, and you're stealing all my data. And you know, you send me these forms once a year that if I don't fill out, you'll sell my data to like everybody in the world, and you know. I hate you. <laughs> I agree. It's just it's it's it kind of just cheapens so much, and and then they, they kind of make it like no no this is the only way we can make money. But no the the trickle down's not happening. It's every, every concession stand person should be making like triple if they got the name it's something. Get it to the bottom, people. They're not getting it there. Yeah, no, it's it's weird. I don't want to get stuck on sports, but. Uh, it's the same of obviously of, of music too. You know, you want to go see the freaking I don't know why you'd want to see them if you wanted to see the Rolling Stones. The tickets are like three hundred dollars for oxygen row seats or whatever, and it's like I don't know. It's kind of sad. I'd rather I'd really rather go see a ballet or a symphony. This is where I've come at in my life where I'm like, do I really want to see Mick Jagger running around at seventy years old and just aching for the you know. And it's just audience karaoke at the same time. So it's I'd rather I'd rather plunge. It hasn't been for decades, but uh, I don't know. Um, I can't I can't even go to Nick Cave shows anymore. Just I, I've seen him like thirty times, and, I, and just because I've been this weird ass fan. But everyone's got their camera in the air, and it's and it's just this it's this weird love fest, and everyone knows every word to every song, and. No one's that none of the bad seeds are chain smoking anymore on the stage. It's <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, Nick Cave, those were the days, too. Uh, I was friends with Kid Congo a little bit back in the back in the day. He almost uh, we almost hired him as our babysitter way back in the day, yeah. So, too bad. He's a sweet guy, he's a really nice guy. He is a really sweet guy. Um, yeah, belies like the feeling you get from the music, like yeah, we're the most evil people in the world, kind of right. But I, I guess that hasn't—they've gone way past that, I guess, a long time ago. But uh, anyway, you're talking about going to the symphony, or it's funny. I had a really strange mental breakthrough the other day. I've been uh, hacking around on guitar for decades, and you know, knew how to play some songs. I know how to make chords. I have a decent sense of time. But never learned any music theory, like why, you know, I mean, I know you could play GCD, but I never knew, like, why. And just in the last uh, month or so, I've been uh, uh, 
doing music theory stuff on YouTube, sitting there with my guitar and doing practice, and it's kind of it's kind of blown my mind. Yeah, and, it, and I mean, this is going to sound so silly to any actual real musicians who are listening to this because it's so basic. But this is the kind of thing I just skipped over. I would play, I would know you play these notes and it sounds good or whatever. But uh, the fact I was playing uh, the the A the the A minor Dorian scale the other day, and the fact that it's exactly the same as G major. But if you play a G major scale. It sounds like really boring vanilla, but if you just play it as an A minor Dorian, it's the exact same notes. You just put an emphasis on different notes, and it sounds really cool. And it just blew my mind. I was like, what the fuck? And I mean, I'd heard that before, but I just kind of experienced it the other day. And anyway, what happened instantly is it made it hard for me to listen to rock music because I kind of understood it at this level. So I just have been listening to classical like crazy the last few weeks. I don't know, because I can listen to classical and enjoy it, but not have any idea what the fuck is going on. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. I got a kick. You know, uh, that I, so I did something quite the opposite of that. Because when I moved to L.A., I had to drive a car, right? And so instead of listening to, like, college radio and... Uh, what I, you know, anything that's left of the dial, which I've done, you know, for way too long. I got into top 40 and I got into hip hop and I listened to the top 40 stations because those are very foreign to me. So now I know what, I know now what a Jay-Z is and, and I now know all these, I, I'm starting to catch up on this stuff and I'm just going and it's, and I really dig it. I'm, I'm driving in my car and singing along to Big Sean and I'm just going, what happened to me? That's 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 great because I I mean I'll I, I have to admit I don't listen to I know so little about pop music now whereas I knew everything about it say before the year two thousand or so you know um, and uh, especially of the music that I grew up with seventies and eighties you know I mean I whatever I have a huge record collection whatever but and I you know dip my toe in I hear about stuff that it's come out like in the 2010s but uh, I don't listen to that stuff much and I don't I don't know much at all about modern hip-hop uh, whereas I, I mean I used to love uh, you know 80s and 90s hip-hop I you know I, I yeah I was really into Tribe Called Quest and you know and uh, uh, NWA and uh, all that stuff, uh, Run DMC and LL Cool J, all that, all that great stuff. And uh, somewhere along the line, it just, you know, kind of faded out of my consciousness. It might have been Eminem who did it to me, you know. <laughs> I mean, Eminem killed the generation of. I think you're right. And then, and then when, I remember when he was trying to do his. Um, he said he said a crack about Moby on one of his tracks. And then, like, and then at one of the award ceremonies, he was trying to call out Moby, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, dude, yeah. Moby's not a heavy guy to call out. It's yeah. he, he's a small vegetarian fella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it was all over like what Kanye West did to Taylor Swift, you know? What, what did he do? <laughs> at the, what was it? The MTV Awards? This is like my knowledge of of pop culture. This happened like fucking eight years ago already, but she won the Song of the Year. 
and and uh, Kanye stormed the stage and grabbed the mic from her when she was doing her acceptance and go, wait a minute, let me finish, let me finish. I'm a finish. I'm a gonna finish. And it's like the best song was "Single Ladies" by Beyonce was the single. Of the, and it's like whatever, you know. I mean, I don't, I don't really care about either one of them, but. I hate that because it's like let Taylor Swift have her moment. I don't know who she is, but let her have her moment. This and award ceremonies are just so stupid anyway. It's just like red carpet. Ooh, ah, here's your gift bag. It's, you know, it's uh, it, it's it's and, and but I mean that's also maybe again something else that I've, I I I was talking about too is like I I I think there's like enormous numbers of people out there making really cool music and maybe more than ever before what with the power what you can do with your macbook pro and logic x or you know um bedroom pop they're calling it i guess uh yeah uh it's like what's her name grimes who started doing her stuff when she was like a teenager in her bedroom you know literally you know but uh uh the the mega pop stuff it's just all terrible to me. Like no matter what it is, Taylor Swift or Beyonce or Jay Z or what, anything. The the real, it's all like, it, all those songs. Like what's her name, Katy Perry, all that stuff. There's like there's like three guys who write all those songs, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they're in suits and somewhere. You know, we should just change the name of this podcast to Two Old Guys Talking Culture." Two old guys bitching, pissing, and moaning. This, unfortunately, is what my podcast turns into more often than not, sadly, you know. Yeah, yeah. How, um, you've, you've, been, you've got a bunch of podcasts in the can. I was, I was actually on one, one of your episodes. Yes, you were. Yeah, no, we've had some really good people. Um, I'm really glad that uh, I, got a, I did get a chance to interview Steve Cannon uh, shortly before he passed away. And also Steve Dalachinsky, uh, again, suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. Yeah, yeah, so... Um, but, but I don't know. It's just good. It's a, it's like a good excuse to like call people up and have a long conversation, right? This is uh, I, this is exactly why I do this. It's an excuse to uh, talk to you while I'm in San Francisco and just have a long conversation. Yeah, and how often do you get a chance to sit down and just talk to somebody for an hour and shoot the shit? You know, so so that, that's that's fun. I I, I I admire the way you do it face to face like this with your little kit that you bring around and wearing a. We're in a coffee shop here in, on Larkin Street, and I'm looking at people walking by out the window. It's kind of cool. I, I do mine in my, my garage, you know, the cliche, but I do it in my garage where I have my computer and generally do it over Skype. Sometimes people come and stop by, but, uh, yeah, I generally do it over video chat and then just post the audio. I, what I, I kind of really like that um, we're in the middle of a lot of people, so there's a little bit of uncomfortableness of just having a microphone in a place where we sh- where you wouldn't you usually wouldn't see a microphone, and yeah. it's uh, I, I don't know for some odd reason it just kind of gives a little bit of a a little bit of I don't know if it heightens the it does it, it does something to me where I like it, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's torture. Well, I, I was totally comfortable until you said that. Yeah. Now I'm freaking out. Yeah, I, I, I interviewed one of my friends the other day. She's got a book coming out in 2020 and hasn't really done any interviews. And I'm gonna, I'm the first one on the book, and uh, and I'm holding tape till that comes out. But when I when I interviewed her with this microphone, she kept 
pulling further and further away from it, and I kept putting it closer and closer to her. And then finally, about 20 minutes in, she was coming in on it. But it's just, it's interesting to see the body language of people and how, when you know, cause it is weird to have a mic thrown in your face where you wouldn't have one thrown in your face normally at a coffee shop where we're sitting here looking at each other. What you, the audience, cannot see is that Tony's got this, like, 16-inch big black microphone that he keeps moving back and forth as we're speaking and it's a it's a little different you know i mean i'm used to like speaking into a mic that's on a stand or whatever with with headphones on and you know and i'm not even wearing headphones now so who knows what i sound like but it's probably better that i don't hear myself sultry and sexy that's all i got to say my friend although i strangely am getting used to the sound of my own voice you know it's, did, did, uh, before you did podcasts, did you ever do radio or listen to yourself? Yeah, yeah, and it's always like, I sound like that? What? That's what I sound like? You know, because uh, I guess it's, it's uh, I don't know what it is. It's like the fact that we hear ourselves and our, our voices are resonating inside our skulls and whatever. We sound quite different to how other people hear us. But, yeah, it's the same thing as like, uh, you know, you, when you see yourself in a photograph, you're actually seeing what you look like. As opposed to when you look in a mirror, because when you look in a mirror, your sides are reversed. So you're used to seeing yourself in a mirror your whole life, and that's not really what you look like. You look reversed from that, which is how you look in a photograph. So a lot of times, you know, you see yourself in a photograph, you go, what? That's what I look like? Yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm not Brad Pitt. I'm Paul Giamatti. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I don't look like what I looked like when I was 27 anymore, you know? What? Because, you know, of course, that's, I think you get to a certain point where you, you know, I don't want to say stop maturing, but uh, hopefully you continue to mature your whole life in some ways anyway, but, you know, and change. But I think you also, there's a certain point where you're pretty much, you are who you are, and that's maybe in your mid to late 20s something like that and then you know you kind of think that's who you are and then the the outer shell just continues to to erode and and corrode and and <laughs> little pieces start falling off you know i i think i think we just keep tweaking it because you know like in my 20s like because when we're in our 20s we're moving we're, we're shifting so much in our 30s the shift starts to move down even though we'll work harder in our 40s still honing still tweaking if we're doing what we love and then you know now as i'm i just entered 50 i'm stoked to see what happens with the tweaking of the 50s because the 40s were really good to me yeah yeah i turned 59 yeah dude i did not know you were that old holy shit yeah that fucking old i know and it's like and everybody (laughs) do you like that do you like the reaction I like, but here's the sad part. It's like, <laughs> I like go to the doctor because like my back's all fucked up now. I've got like a bad back and like I go to the doctor and they always say the same thing. It's like, oh, wow, you look like you look like you're like 48. And I was like, yeah, but I feel like I'm 78. So it's like on the inside, it's, you know, it's all falling apart. But uh, <laughs> well, what's important is what's on the surface. And on the surface, you look great. There you go. It only matters how you look, right? It only matters how you look. It's the glossy sheen of the magazine is what matters, not the content. Yes, judge this book by its cover. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. That's so. So when uh, when when did you move to um, West Coast? Moved to the West Coast in uh, 2007. I basically lived in New York for 
Uh, 23 years. Uh, what, what brought you? Did we connect after you came out here? I can't remember when we connected, but forget about that. What, um, what brought you out here? Actually, it was a job. You know, so uh, I, I uh, so in the 90s, I was doing sensitive skin and I was trying to be a writer and I just worked temp jobs like all the things you do when you're trying to be a writer. And uh, but I was also, uh, you know, talking about youth, like in my 20s, I felt like a giant raw exposed nerve. You know what I mean? Anything that, that, that happened to me just like affected me so deeply. And like if a girl broke up with me or it didn't even have to be something as dramatic as that. If it's like if somebody said something mean to me, I could like feel terrible like for days and get depressed, you know. And so I, I you know, medicated that with, with drugs and alcohol, you know, for a long time. Um, but anyway... I was, uh, the long story short, I've probably talked about this before, but around the time I was like, I guess around 35, I'd quit drinking, I'd quit doing drugs, and I was still writing. I'd written a shitload of short stories, and I'd written like three novels, all of which were crap, you know, as they're supposed to be. Well, I think you, you ha in order to learn how to write a novel, you write a novel. Right. And, you, and you can't, and that first novel's not going to go anywhere. Right, right. Yeah, first three, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, but I'd done all this, and then around that time, like a few of my friends started like uh, becoming successful writers, you know, and meaning everything from like I had one friend who got like a million dollar contract for three books or but but really for me what it meant it was like I'd walk down the street and see your book in the, you know, in the window at like like Barnes and Noble, not even just like the local indie bookstore. But I was like, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, and then I'd see that like how tough their lives were. They're still like just scratching, and I'd I'd been living like I was like couch surfing and you know semi homeless for years, and I got tired of it. And I started uh, around that time. Multimedia was the big thing. If you remember that, do you remember for like about a minute and a half? It was like you, you CD ROMs and games like Mist and interactivity was the big thing, and I was already fucking around with. Um, with desktop publishing and I started doing Photoshop work which was like more gratifying to me creatively I was really good at Photoshop and then I was kind of like hey I can like write some code and make this shit move around and interact so I started doing that and I, I found it um, very creatively satisfying somehow and also uh, what's the word remuneratively satisfying you know what does that mean like I was making money that's see, you know, it's great that you can make money from something that feeds the creativity. Yeah, it was it was really great. I, I and I did that all through the '90s, and, uh, uh, and and it was back then nobody give a, gave a shit like what your background was. So, you know, nobody cared that I'd been like sleeping on somebody's couch two years earlier. You know, nobody cared shit about my resume. You know, it was just like, oh, you can do this. You can make this happen for me this weekend. How much? And I go, uh, I don't know. How about? Uh, Five thousand dollars, and they'd say fantastic, and I was like, "Wow, I could ask for ten, you know?" Yeah. Don't you hate that when you're like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna ask for this high thing," and then they say yes too fast, and you're like, "I could have gotten more." What was I thinking? But anyway, it was like it was really fun. It was really great, and I, you know, I, I and then I, I, I got married and had kids, and I like I made a very conscious decision to stop doing the magazine and stop writing, you know. Because uh, I'm just going to focus on this. Yeah. This is more fulfilling to me. Yeah. And I also kind of liked that, like, as opposed to, like, 
when I would go, when I would like say read something in public, and you know, and you know how it is, how writers can be. Half the people they're like, you suck, you know, <laughs> as opposed to like I'd spend you know some time doing this, and they go, oh my god, that's fantastic, and here's an enormous check for your trouble, and is you know it was, and then I had a kid, and it was like kind of easy to. I don't want to say easy to make that decision. It took me about a year to just say, I'm going to just stop this completely. And then uh, I moved out to uh, San Francisco in 2007 for a job. I was working as a game developer at uh, Nickelodeon, which is, again, like a really swank job, you know. And uh, so I was like a hot commodity and somebody brought, said, you want to move out to California and I'll pay your way? I was like sick of New York at that time. New York was changing, and, you know, again, I had kids. The East Village was not a fun place to try to raise kids. It's been living in the East Village, like, my whole life, basically. And uh, anyway, I just came out here and looked at, like, you know, the the job was in Sausalito, and I was like, oh, and they just took me around. And and I ended up in Mill Valley, of all places, which is... It is very beautiful. It's also really horrible in some ways, which is what my book is about basically uh the social commentary about marin and late stage capitalism you know but uh uh i didn't know any better if i if i'd known better that's not where i would have settled but it's where i settled and put my kids in school and i didn't feel like moving around again so we stayed and we're actually my kids are out of the house now we're gonna uh we're leaving i'm i'm glad to say we're gonna i don't know where we're gonna go but we're we're gonna sell our house and uh you know are you going to get out of the Bay, you think? Uh, we're going to probably stay in the Bay, but probably move like to the outskirts somewhere yeah. where where life is a little less ridiculously expensive, you know? And anyway, I, I had this really hotshot job and paid me this gigantic salary and gave me this fancy title. And uh, I, after about like six weeks, I, was, I knew two things. I was like, I'm going to, I'm staying in San Francisco and I'm not going to be in this job that long, you know, and after about a year and a half, I, I, I quit. And then I've just been sort of fucking around with one thing or another, some freelancing. And, um, so, so what, what, what made you, when was it that you had said, I got to start sensitive skin again? Well, uh, so it's funny. I had a, uh, there was a number of things. It was just sort of like, I, to sound super corny and like I'm an Oprah fan or whatever, it was like the, the universe was sending me messages. You, know? you get a car. You get a car. <laughs> exactly. Look under your seat. You've got a magazine and you've got a magazine. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, it, it, there's a bunch of things that converged all around the same time. It's like, first of all, I had a health crisis um, that, that uh, was, you know, that I went through or whatever, but really made me feel my mortality you know I was like it, it like turned 50 and had like some shit happen and I was like wow I'm gonna die it's not like it's not like this theoretical thing anymore it's like it's happening it could have happened now you know um, and then also it, it, it's funny it's like so even though I was involved in like uh, the tech world which I've like loved in the 90s and have come to really hate you know, oh, yeah, because yeah, I ended up like first I was doing game, de- you know, interactivity, and then I ended game development. That was kind of fun, and then I ended up doing web development, which is like really fucking boring because all websites are basically the same, right. and so it's it's really boring and really stressful at the same time because it's like a million fucking things that can go wrong, yeah. 
So anyway, uh, but so I had this health crisis, but I also realized that <clears throat> uh, even though I wasn't in the art world anymore, that like, like most of my friends were still like artists and writers, you know, like musicians, jazz musicians, writers, and, and uh, just like ran into a couple of people and they like, hey, whatever happened to Sensitive Skin? That was so great. You should bring it back. And um, after that happened, like within a short space, like half a dozen times, I said, what the fuck? I know, how to, I know how to build a website. What the hell? I'll do a sensitive skin website. And I uh, um, wrote about 50 people saying I'm starting the magazine again. Uh, and about six of them replied and sent me something, you know, who are the old timers. And uh, that was the first issue. It came out in June 2010. And then uh, it's built up from there, you know. And, and again, since then, we've just had all sorts of great people in there and like art by John Lurie and yeah, that was good. yeah and, uh, and art and writing by uh, I don't know there's a million but Gary Indiana like some you know some heavyweight people we've had some great people in there so I, no I'm getting the oh you got Gary Indiana I was mixing him up with something else and I, I started to drink with Tony again I don't know if I told you this because I, I started, you know, I started in 2002, and then it's do, it was doing pirate radio in college and whatever, and then I stopped when I went to L.A., and then I was working, and I was working on Jesus Jerk, and then I was just in a deep depression for about two years, and then I got so low, I was like, why am not, ha- why am I not happy? What was one of the last things that made me happy? And I went drinks with Tony, and I just, I just started it again as a podcast, going, well, let's see how long this goes. And, and now it's like week, I haven't missed a week and we're on 63 weeks. It's crazy. That's fantastic. I, 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 I realized at a certain point I had to take a break from it, you know, and I stopped for like four months and now I'm on season two. And I, I, I like that. I saw that. You got season one and season two. I, I'm like, I should have done it that way. That, that would be so much cooler. Yeah, it got a little bit uh, uh, oppressive for a while, but it's fun. But anyway, yeah, it's like I need to like, I, and I was like, I need to start writing again. What's the point of my life? I'm just like doing this shitty job that I don't like now, making making good money, but it sucks, and I'm not happy with it. And so I wanted to, uh, you know, and so I started uh, writing again and wrote some short stories, and it was and it was kind of. Interesting. One of the things I did was I, I took out an old novel, one of those no, original novels, and I tried to rewrite it. And I sat down over the course of six months and like struggled with it and wrote like 500 pages. I basically took the, the story and just rewrote it. And I had like 500 pages. And uh, I just, uh, and, and I was like, this is fucking horrible. It's still, it's a mistake. I got to, but it was, and then I sat down and wrote this new book in like a month the first draft and like hey that's actually okay. so it was kind of fun it was like after all this thousands of pages of writing I feel like I found my voice finally at like the age of 55 and it was, and it was also really helpful to have stopped for like 12 years somehow <laughs> like there was some wheels turning like in the subconscious somehow and I, I somehow figured out uh, <clears throat> to my style I think is more much more uh you know, it's more natural. It's like me talking, right? right? Which is what, you, which is like always what you want, right? I think. I think anyway. Maybe there's other ways of doing it, but for me, I, I always just wanted to be like, hey, here's me telling a story to you. you know? And it's so hard to get to that point. I think you. I think you got to get in there. And at, at first, you know, the bad poetry days are is our authentic voice, and then it just takes years and years of yeah. like 
just mixing it up and being scared and be and doing you know and really getting into it and then we find our voice again it's, it comes back to us just talking almost yeah no i mean being a writer is a tough road to hoe uh, i mean especially in again in this day and age this is a set I, I think that like if we were uh you know if we were born 50 years earlier we could have like made a living cranking out like pot boiler novels or something like that you know and you can't <clears throat> do that anymore i mean even the most uh, successful writers I know are, are uh, they generally end up working in university, yeah. right? More, more, and that's what you're doing. It's, it's, it's what everybody ends up doing, right? Uh, or, or, but the, and the real successful guys I know are writing TV shows on the side. You know, they write their books, but then they got to write some TV shows to. Oh, I've, as I'm here in San Francisco, I'm working on a pilot that I can start showing around. So, and yeah, it's so. It, yeah, it's, the t- it's all about the TV show and the health insurance with the Writers Guild. <laughs> Good luck with the, uh, I mean, shit, you know, people have said that my book should be a Netflix series, and I'm like, well, why the fuck not? They're, they make 500 fucking new series a year. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see that South Park episode where they wanted to make a Netflix series? Yeah. And the, so they called Netflix, and the way Netflix answered the phone, they had this whole, they showed a whole room full of people as receptionists, and it said, they answered it saying, Netflix, you're greenlit. <laughs> I know, right? And then South, South Park was the only, the Cartman was the only one that couldn't get on Netflix, but everyone else had a show. Netflix, you're greenlit. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I would suggest, too, is like that if you combine um, <clears throat> uh, cartel drug dealers with serial killers and cooking that you're in, you know? It's just like, I don't know. I wish I, you know, I wish, I really wish I gave a crap about true crime. I wish I gave a crap about serial killers because, I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in writing, even podcasts on that, and I don't give a crap. Yeah, no, I guess, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's the big thing. These, but, I mean, that's, that's fucking Netflix. It seems like it's 75% of the shows on there are like Narcos or Narcos in Mexico or... You know, cooking with narcos, right? Yeah. I just I find those shows so tedious now. I'm like, oh, really? You're redoing this? What? It's like the junkie memoir, where it's just like, after you've read so many redemption stories, and, and you're just going, come on, you know, do a different angle on it. I let, I don't know if you ever read uh, Rob Robert. She did a, a book called Liar, and that was one that where I was just like, God damn, dude, thank you for taking it back and doing and doing a craft on it. And, that's a great book. Hi, Rob, if you're listening. No, and I, I and it's funny. I uh, uh, when I finished when I finished reading that book, um, I called uh, uh, Patrick O'Neill, who's like really good friends with Rob, and I was like, "Is is is Rob okay? Should I be worried?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, no, no. You know, it's just his book. He just ended it. You know, I mean, I just love the way he structured." that book and he and he just happened to you know going from like the, the his horrible bottoms to good time whatever and in between and he just happened to end it on one of the bottom notes but no that was a great book yeah it was funny because i was like he talked about a panel discussion he did at a festival of books in 2010 and how he was back on heroin again i was like that's the panel discussion i was on him i was on with him <laughs> i was like i'm like this is rad um, I was. Oh yeah, Patrick O'Neill. He's one of your editors on Sensitive yep. Skin, right? Yes, he is. Yeah. What does he edit? Stuff. That's great. And no, no, I, I thought he was. I thought he was like one of. The, oh, um, I thought he was like a short story editor who just grabs certain things. But 
Well, you know, I mean, all the uh, <clears throat> so the editors right now it's it's Patrick and uh, uh, Ron Colm, a New York poet who's the co-founder of the Unbearables Group, and uh, this is who's it's changed. People flow in and out, and uh, uh, there's a guy named Franklin Mount who does a lot of art stuff and reviews gallery shows in New York, and uh, Mark Olmsted, the poet, is starting to help out, and it's just you know it's uh, whatever we're. They bring st they bring people in, right? They say, hey, "My friend sent us this," or, uh, but also like I've, I, I've been pretty sloppy about it the past six months. But we just got a, a slew of uh, submissions. Uh, I think it's because the uh, selected writing book came out, and that that triggered a slew of submissions. So I'm sending them out to everybody, and we're all looking through them. And you know, about one out of five is worth publishing so that's not so bad that's actually really good i used to run this thing called cherry bleeds for 10 years it was a it was my literary magazine and it was kind of the same thing where everyone thought it was about transgression i'm like no it's just honesty in writing it's yeah but um but you know i also kind of played along with it and said uh the tagline was um life affirming stories by suicidal writers so maybe i was playing into it a little bit but uh but yeah the submissions i would get i i would probably it was online, and I was getting submissions. It was just, it was way too much. And people would be really rude when I would be like, when I would reject them or whatever. I was just like, why am I taking this heat when I'm working 20 hours a week to just get a, an issue up every week? And just not getting, you're not getting paid to read the stuff, you know? I mean, a lot of magazines are actually charging reading fees, which I, I, I hate to do that because I'm already at a point where, like, I, I can't pay people, you know? Uh, I wish I could. Um, one of these days, maybe I'll get my shit together and try to get a grant or something like that. But uh, I don't know. What's great about sensitive skin, though, is one you got the you got the collective of the good group of people. It's always fun to be around great writers and in a journal that's got great writing. And then the other thing is the sleek design. You know, it's like if I want to get paid, I pitch Penthouse to do a rock article, and I know that I'm going to be, you know in between a bunch of other stupid shit, but it's, you know, I'm not going to be around a collective of good people. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, I'm loathe to like charge a reading fee, but on the other hand, boy, some of the stuff that comes in, it's like, you should really be paying me <laughs> to read this. Um, because I do try to give it attention, but you know, uh, and I try to read the short stories all the way through. I try to, even though, I mean, you can pretty much tell by the first two paragraphs, if it's any good or not, but I, I give them a chance. And maybe this will get better, and it usually doesn't. Once in a while, it does, though. Once in a while, somebody, I was like, oh, okay, I see what you were doing. You came around to something. You fit some pieces together, but usually, usually not. And you know, and there's nothing like bad poetry to, uh, you know, put you off your food or whatever. I used to have a no poetry uh, thing on Cherry Bleeds until I got a poetry editor. Who actually wanted to do it? I'm like, fine, you do it. I don't even want to look at it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we actually say that on our submissions page: no unsolicited poetry. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, no, it's uh, it's fun. We get some good stuff, and we've got like a. We started. We we were originally doing. Uh, I was originally doing a print version of it, and that just became untenable for a number of reasons. And and I I switched like in 2015 to online only. And uh, but then we did the anthology, you know, recently, and that you know, uh, selected writing from a few years, and uh, and I'm just concentrating on. 
if I'm going to do, if you're going to do print these days, it doesn't make sense to do a magazine unless you have like some serious backing or, you know, but I can do books. Because basically nobody wants to stock a magazine because it goes out of date. Right? Even though it really shouldn't, it's more of a journal that should, that, you know, I mean, our, our, it's not like our, uh, I still have the print issues, they're available on Amazon and they still sell. And there's no reason why they shouldn't. They're just, you know, they're short stories and art, right? right? And, uh, uh, but nobody wants to actually carry it. I couldn't get anybody to distribute them because it's, it's tough for magazines. So anyway, but we're getting like, you know, like 10,000 views a month or something like that. Yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty good. I mean, I wish it was 10 times that amount. So we'll see. Maybe that'll happen. Are you, uh, and, and you do, um, you did Lit Quake this year. Are you planning on doing Lit Quake again, uh, the Lit Crawl next year? Uh, I don't know. I have mixed feelings. About it. Was it a little sloppy? It was a little sloppy, you know. I mean, they, they gave us a decent venue, but uh, we were upstairs from a bar that was playing really, really loud music and uh, no mic. They didn't give us a mic even. And I was like, really? Come on. You know, it's so I wasn't thrilled. And then one of our readers I was really looking forward to stood us up at the last minute because he had to go to fucking New York to try. No, 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 no. Who who stood you up? I'll talk to that fella. I'm not going to say his name on this podcast. It's Tony Duchesne was his name. <laughs> so essentially, I dodged a bullet because you were in a bad venue. <laughs> yes, there you go. Yeah. No, it was, it, was, it was fun, but, you know, we had a smallish. I mean, the last time I did it, I did it like three years ago or something like that, and they gave us a really sweet spot, and we packed the joint. We had like, we had like 150 people in there because we were like, like on a ground floor in a place with like windows looking out to the street. And this was just like we were upstairs at this loud bar. You had to know to go there, kind of. Whereas before we were getting foot traffic, I think. Anyway, I was like, why did you give me this kind of crappy venue after we did great the other time we did this? So, I don't know. Yeah, at some point you just kind of go, ah, it's a loss. Let's, let's just all look at each other and have a conversation. Those were the readers. Have a great night, everybody. Mingle amongst yourselves. Yeah, yeah, no, but it was okay. I mean, about 20 people showed up, so it's, it was all right, you know. But, but it's also just the amount of work and time that I put into it to, like, be part of Lit Crawl. It's like I could fucking do a reading anywhere and get 20 people to show up, you know. So it's, uh, it's a little disappointing. But well, we, could, we could get up right now and do a reading, and there's 20 people here. We could. We could say, hey, everybody, gather around. We could be like Beto O'Rourke and get up and stand on the table, right? <laughs> I miss him. Oh, he was, I never failed to laugh anytime I saw him on TV. He's so ridiculous somehow. He always looked like he was like a, he looked like he was like a ninth grader who'd like borrowed one of his dad's suits, you know, to like be his on the big event, but I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Bernard, it was fantastic. Finally getting you on Drinks with Tony, man. It's been years. It's been years. We did it. Woohoo! Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. All right, man. Thanks. Good talking to you. Bernard Meisler on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, There Has Never Been a Better Way to Die. Bernard is also the founder and editor of Sensitive Skin Magazine, and he has a podcast there chatting with other writers, so check that out as well. Hey, thanks for listening to episode 67 we just keep pumping them out here at the Drinks with Tony compound. 
And if you like hearing two people talk about their ailments, what gets stuck under their craw, what gets stuck in their craw, but most importantly, the nuts and bolts of writing. Keep tuning in. My name's Tony Duchesne. I will see you next Wednesday.